and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast world. Welcome. I am Brooke McCallery. Thank you for joining me. And I am Ben McCallery, and welcome to episode 167, where you speak to the wonderful Helen Haywood. I do. So Helen has written a number of books, but just earlier this year, just in May, uh, she's released a book called A Slow Childhood. And that's essentially why I wanted to talk to her, because it's a beautiful book. She writes, uh, a lot of it is memoir, so it's not, you know, a how-to parenting style book. Yeah, picking it up, it looks like a a how-to book, but uh, it it actually isn't. No, so each chapter where she talks about a particular part of parenting, she will end with tips Mm -hmm. or hints, Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily like a step-by-step how-to, and she fully admits in the beginning of the book that not everything is going to work for everyone Mm -hmm. at all times. Sure. So it's a really invitational accessible kind of look at what giving her own children who are now like 17 and 20 a slow childhood meant Mm. and she's honest that's great really honest about the fact that she had prioritized a slow childhood for the kids and she talks about what that actually looks like because it can look very different for for different people and why in the end she discovered that it was actually incompatible with her initial career uh, trajectory that she had decided on for herself. Okay. Uh, not and <laughs> that might sound like a real downer, but you know that I talk a lot mm. about the fact that we we tilt, we can't balance, and we can't have everything that we want at the same time. Mm. And what I love about this book is that she admits that, and this is something that people don't often do. They don't often admit that, and she doesn't admit it in a in a way that makes it feel like a a settling or giving in, but rather um, an embracing of the fact that you can't have it all at the same time. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciated it. I loved it. Now, I know you were very pumped to talk to Helen because we get a lot of feedback from our wonderful listeners about what are some of the activities that you can do as a family that are all about slowing down. Mm-hmm. And, and we always come up with the same ones bushwalking, happy days. Yeah. Does Helen go into detail about what that looks like for her and her family? She she talks more, not so much in specifics, she talks more about how to open up space for things to happen. Great. Uh, and the other thing that I really appreciated about Helen was that she does have older kids and she speaks a bit about what slow looks like with older kids. Uh, it's Which like, is another question we get all the time. We do, yeah. because our mm. kids aren't, like, they're still quite young, mm. you know, in year one and year two. So it will absolutely look different over the different courses of, you know, of, of childhood and adolescence and then into adulthood. Um, and so it gives it that complete picture of growing up, you know, and, and how that yeah, changes. Yeah, because I spoke with yeah. Tish a couple of weeks ago about, you know, that tween sort of age. Yeah, and she was embarrassed that... She, you positioned her as someone with older kids. She was. <laughs> Sorry, Tish. <laughs> so Helen writes a, a blog as well that I would highly recommend everyone go and check out because she writes so incredibly beautifully about little things that actually aren't the little things in the end. They turn out to be the big things. But she, she will take a, a small lesson and unpick it to create this entire image of like an element of life i'm doing a terrible job i know what you mean i can i yeah i know exactly but what she you writes mean. really beautifully mm. so her blog is over at haywoodhelen.com 
slowyourhome.com.au. I'm going to have links to everything in the show notes as usual, which are over at slowyourhome.com slash 167 for today. But do yourself a favor and check it out. Over there, you can also find links to all of her um, her writing. She's a freelance writer in addition to being a psychotherapist. Um, she used to be an, a literature teacher. She had a really interesting career. And you can also find uh, links in the show notes to the places you can buy her book, but Booktopia, Book Depository have it. And you can also find a link to uh, an ebook version on the website as well. So I highly recommend that you uh, that you check it out and check out Helen's blog too. Excellent. But before we get into the episode, let's talk briefly about our sponsor of this episode, and that is Etitude, who have been with us before and are a great supporter of Jackrabbit FM networked shows. They are. So you know that we've spoken about ethical fashion on the podcast before and why it's important to people and planet and environment. But what about all the things that we use on a day-to-day basis that aren't clothes? What about things like ethical bed linen? So Etitude, make, they make ethical bed linen. They do. That's they do. their thing. That's their thing. That's their thing. They, so they make sheets, covers, pillowcases, like cot sets, mattress protectors, and they're all completely organic and ethical and microbial, and they're free from harmful chemicals like um, toxic dyes and pesticides and things like that. And I know we do a lot of research, we slash I, on the sponsors that we work with, and Etitude is one of those sponsors that we just would not partner with if it wasn't for those reasons. They are almost best practice. They've ticked every box. Every box. Every single box. So um, the way they treat employees, they only work with certified manufacturers. Uh, Bamboo is self-regenerating crop that uses far less water than cotton. It's all organic from, you know, from go to woe is all organic. It's cruelty-free. It's vegan-friendly. Like every single box that we would want to work with a conscious brand – Attitude has ticked. And do you know what else is really nice? Their products are really, really good. I haven't slept on every sheet in the entire world. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that quite happily now. But of every sheet in the entire world that I have slept on, our attitude sheets are genuinely the comfiest that I've ever used. They're soft, they're silky, without being like that creepy silk, silky feeling. Mm. They breathe, they're warm, they're cool. When we, first, when we first got them, we were told that we would never need to use flannel sheets again in winter, and I didn't believe them. I thought that without question, come June, we would do our old flannel swap out for the season. And it came to like August and we realized that we were still using our attitude sheets. Mm. They, are, they genuinely are warm in winter and cool in summer. So when it came time to do the, the old sheet swap out this year, we ended up just giving them away because we will not use our flannelette winter sheets again. No, we'll never use it again. Now, there could be two reasons for that. (laughs) One, attitude sheets are that good. Or two, global warming. (laughs) Yes, that that is true. But I'm going to say it's because attitude sheets are very good. However, Hmm. if global warming is something that you're concerned about, and you should be, attitude has you covered there too. Because like I mentioned before, Bamboo uses far less water than conventional cotton crops. They're uh, completely organic. Again, no harmful pesticides, dyes. So it's much, much better for the environment than your traditional cotton sheets. And to top all of that off, Etitude have actually just released two new product lines. The first is a a new range of bamboo sheets Mm -hmm. that actually has bamboo charcoal powder ingrained into the fabric. Yep. Everything's better with a bit of charcoal. Sure. That's, that's the, that's the saying, but that means that they fight uh, unwanted odor. 
they control bacteria Mm -hmm. and they stay fresh for longer, which bonus, you don't have to wash them as often. Nice. So there's another, another environmental saving. The second product that I am really not mad about at all is they have just released a range of sleepwear. Pajamas made of the same fabric as their deliciously comfortable sheets, which essentially means that I can now walk around the house wearing a suit made of clouds. Clouds are good to sleep with. Sure they are. <laughs> so the, the fabric, again, is organic. It's ethical bamboo. You can buy tops and bottoms separately, which is awesome. And they also come in winter and summer design. Plus, they're really affordable. So Etitude wants to give you 10% off your first order. So if you head over to etitude.com.au slash slow home and use the discount code sleep better, you will get that 10%. So head over there. Check out Attitude, check out your sheets, check out your pajamas, and enjoy the episode. Well, Helen, thank you so much for talking to me. Pleasure, Brooke. It's, um, it's lovely to talk to you. I spent the last sort of few days just wrapped up in the blanket of your new book and it's, um, it's lovely. Congratulations. It's, it's a very beautiful book, really beautifully written. Thank you so much. Um, I, did, I did write it a few times, so <laughs> it's not accidental. No. You know, I've actually just finished um, the edits on my second book and I absolutely yeah. understand what you mean about not being accidental. You know, I had in mind what writing a book would look like, uh, you know, maybe spending some time in a cabin in the woods somewhere and, you know, a pencil stuck in my hair artfully and you know, the muse sure. would just show up. It was nothing, nothing like that. It was um, quite ugly and, you know painful in some respects how did you find it I know it's not your first book but how did you find the process uh look it's my third book and you always think you're going to learn but you just meet new problems and new challenges so look this one spent time in a drawer Mm -hmm. um it spent time with publishers five years or three years ago um so it was really quite an intended act to bring it out and rewrite it and present it to the world in a way that I felt it was ready for. Um, I think it had a lot of, yeah, the, the, the slow title, it was slow cooking. Mm-hmm. There was a lot. I think the meat was quite tough. I had to present it in a way that I felt confident that the reader would be pleased in the act of reading it. Um, my ideal reader was always a woman after a long day, possibly with young kids, maybe not so young, who read the book in the bath. Mm-hmm. And maybe chapter by chapter, not the whole thing. So that was was my kind of imagined reader. And really nice thing happened at a launch last week in Hobart where I just mentioned that at the end. And two women separately came up and said, I read it in the bath. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that kind of redeemed a lot of the stressy bits. Absolutely. I mean, and something about the way that you... You, you craft your words, but but uh, you you spend time really focusing on on things that, if we're in too much of a rush, we could pass off as the little things. But you write about them in the in a way, and you do this on your blog too, where those little things are transformed into the big things. You know, those things that we can so easily rush past without without noticing. 
Um, yeah, look, yeah. I think I think the little things are the big things. I agree. How do you how do you build that stock take into your day? How do you how do you stop and and pay attention? Uh, walking my dog, writing, often out of the house, so not in the house because I actually own a property, not just a house. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit crazy of me, but not entirely crazy because it's the kind of house I was brought up in. So, you know, eatable joke really. I'm, I'm looking after and, and maintaining uh, this property that makes a lot of demands on me. So it's a very hungry house. And I've found that it really helps frame what I need to do. So I'm not inclined to compartmentalize unlike my husband, say, who's a, an analytic philosopher who's able to shut things out, I've never been able to do that. Um, and so that's been another kind of point of reference and another reason to really clarify what I am about. And I think the kind of irony with my so-called work, my writing, is that I do it right in front of everyone's nose. You know, I often work in the kitchen and I send out these blogs about so-called small things. But I actually know I've now, I'm in my early 50s and I have had two close deaths, deaths in my family, my mother and sister. Mm. And so I know through going, to, going through that process that the way I'm going to be remembered is not through my achievements but how I make people feel. So, you know, those are my priorities. That's um, fascinating that you talk about that, actually. I had a conversation with Bronnie Ware a few weeks ago where we spoke about a similar sort of theme, and that's something that, uh, you know, this idea of, of how we're going to be remembered is central to me. You know, that's really how I began this journey, I guess, towards living a, a more intentional, more mindful, slower life was mm-hmm. basically by writing my own eulogy and thinking through how... I wanted to be remembered and, you know, writing that eulogy and, and thinking, well, if, that, if that's how I can be remembered, then that's tremendous and, and wonderful. But am I living a life right now that is going to result in that eulogy? And the answer was no. And that's really where the, the work began, you know, of, of realizing that my priorities were all out of whack. My priorities were not in keeping with the kind of life that I wanted to, to look back and see. And I think that that's, painful you know it's a really painful thing to realize particularly I mean for me at the time I had two really young kids they were probably three and four at the time they're a bit older now but uh you know and and there's so much change and so much shifting happening that it can be um really (laughs) I guess discombobulating to to recognize that and and then then wonder how do I how do I turn it around how do I start making changes I'm going to ask you something. I think you'll like it. Where's the best place to hide something of real value? Something of real value. Um, In a physical sense, where would I hide it? In the present, a place where no one will ever find it. Well, that sounds a bit gnomic, doesn't it? But it's kind of true because, you know, we're always – there's. I mean, I am very psychological in my thinking. Um, uh, My sense is that how we feel – is as if not more important than what we think. Mm-hmm. There's some really nice work by a philosopher psychologist called Daniel Gilbert, and he worked out that people weren't thinking about what they were doing 47% of the time. Wow. 
And in general, people are unhappier when their minds are wandering Mm -hmm. than when they're engaged. And thirdly, that what people are thinking is a better predictor of their happiness than what they are actually doing. So my hunch with mothering is that a lot of the time we're in our heads. I mean, yes, we're buttering toast and we're putting on laundry and we're rushing to the car, but we've got a stream of thoughts running through our head while we're doing that. And my hunch was that if we could turn around some of that thinking and make it in our favor and not against so that we're actually running with it and not counter to it, we would be doing ourselves an enormous favor. Mm. So that's what my writing is trying to bring about. I mean, I can't do it in a book, of course, but just kind of those little hints that, you know, however bad things might seem, we could actually change our attitude to it and they'll look different. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that this idea, which is really the the heart of of what you were just talking about, was paying attention to the present moment. And I think personally, um, my first few years of motherhood particularly, I did a very poor job of that. And I think part of that was because I was completely overwhelmed and completely at sea, you know, with with the way that life had had shifted and the demands on me had shifted and my thoughts of myself had shifted significantly uh, to the negative. And I spent very little time paying attention to what was, as you said, right in front of me in that present moment. And Mm. it was those shifts over time towards noticing the little things which turned out to be the, the big things that really did tilt things back into 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 alignment I guess with with what was important and I think it's uh it's such a fascinating thing to talk about because there is no how to you know that you can't you can't necessarily give people five steps to 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 achieve this I don't think but uh I mean what are some of the things that you did and there's a question that I want to come back to you about in terms of your um, motherhood as you've written about in your book Uh, But what are some things that you would recommend to people who are looking to tap more into those things that are happening in front of them in that present moment, uh, but they find themselves constantly running off with their thoughts? Uh, Well, I have to be honest and say what I'm actually thinking at the time. Um, I do this thing called square breathing in yoga, Mm -hmm. where you, you close your eyes and you imagine a square, and you start breathing at the bottom left, and you go up to the top of the square and then you go across the top of the square, which is the in-breath, and then you go down the bottom of the right-hand square and then along the bottom the bottom of the square to the original starting point, and that's the out-breath. Right. And that's a really simple technique, but it often is enough to smooth over what you call the discombobulation, mm-hmm. which is really just thoughts run mad. Oh, look, I think one of the really interesting things for me now, because my kids are now late teenage, and I don't write about that because I felt very strongly that that was their territory and it would be interfering, and actually I don't know if my skills are up to it. It's so it's such a hard thing to describe because really half of it is your own projection into it. Right. Um, but I have really been shocked by how confronted they have been by their own thought processes and how at sea they have been. Um, they're actually at a Quaker school where they uh, every week sit for an hour in silence 
and there's no agenda. People get up and say something or not say something. It might just be silent. Mm. Generally, generally the same people apparently get up and speak. Um, but but they have had these opportunities to just be aware of the importance of their thought, the thoughts in their heads. And I've kind of partly on my own my own behalf tried to suggest to them that their thoughts, especially the ones they have in the morning, are not always their friends. They're not terribly helpful. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've listened to Mel, Mel Robbins' The Five Second Rule, the five, four, three, two, one, and that kind of resets everything. I am probably going at a tangent. I would say the hardest thing to get your head around is that when I first started and started taking notes for this, I was very much in training as a psychotherapist. And in that training, you write in detail about everything that happens within 50 minutes in a session with a client. And you're uh, assessed on the basis of your accuracy mm-hmm. and ability to do that. So I got quite good at that. But in a way, eventually I had to let go of that, um, partly because being a psychotherapist was so much in line with being a mother that I didn't have enough goodness in me to do both and I didn't want to cut short on family in order to rush off and be there for someone else. But also because I felt that that even training as a psychotherapist was slotting into my career ambitions, which was the destination, not the journey. Right. And it was so much easier for me to, to align myself with the destination because that's what we all want to do. So, you know, like another book, move to another country, you know, everything's in a better once X happens. <laughs> yeah. And look, it was incredibly hard letting that go. And I think probably middle age is the re- the slow realization that things are not necessarily going to be better and they might be better just by not getting worse. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's not terribly, that's not terribly pretty really. And it's not, <laughs> Certainly not the romantic fantasy that we are, I was imbibed with. And, you know, I'm still coming to terms with that. So I still do a lot of yoga and walking and, and sort of drinking in the present because actually it's counterintuitive to my natural go-get-it anxious reaction. Right, which is something that I wanted to, to talk to you about in your book, particularly in the opening chapters, you talk about your decision to start a family and one of the things that struck me was how very um, intentional and incredibly well thought out every one of your decisions was and the reason it struck me is because it was such the antithesis of my experience um, and I don't necessarily have any joy in sharing this but I um, I was 25 when we had our first baby um, so I mean it's not young but it felt young um, and looking back it feels young and I think that at the time I was very much just chugging along on that to-do list of life. You know, you get married, two years later you have a baby, you buy a house, maybe you have another baby, then you renovate your house and, you know, all of these things. And that makes me incredibly sad to think about that now, not because of how it turned out, turned out wonderfully, but because I wasn't necessarily switched into every decision that was happening. Uh, And I, I saw in you the exact opposite and you mentioned that, you know, your natural tendency is of, of maybe anxiety or, or overthinking. But have you always been the person to to really be intentional with your choices, even through, you know, your, your childhood and your teenage years? Or is there a reason that you shifted towards being much more, much more intentional and mindful with your decisions? Oh, Brooke, that could take me an hour. <laughs> Sorry. 
or at least at least the second book. Um, I'm quite a defended person. I think that's what I discovered when I had children. Um, yes, I was quite an intellectual person, although I didn't experience myself that way from the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, everything you write ultimately is retrospective. So I don't quite know what my thinking was. I'm, I'm kind of, I described it and God knows I was in therapy for a long time. So I had plenty of opportunity and, you know, therapy in a way is a bit of overthinking. Mm-hmm. You, you have this enormous opportunity. People see it as a luxury, but it's not really, it's actually pretty demanding because the other person is not, is not nice to you. Mm-hmm. But, but you have this dialogue. So I had this dialogue. I'm going to come at it from the other end, which is that, you know, what happens when your so-called plans don't so much go wrong, but don't go right. And I would say that uh, in line with a sort of suppressed fantasy of about how things are going to go. And, and, and I would, you know, that's a kind of romantic fantasy. I think most of the fantasies that we have are romantically based. Not that, you know, everything is going to be happily ever after, but that basically things are going to work out in, in my favor, in your favor. And I think that the, the decision or the choice or, or just surrendering to the wish to conceive a child, which is what I did in the end. Uh, you know, you can't choose to have a baby because you don't know if you will, but, right, yeah. but you can choose to not use contraceptives. So once you've crossed over that threshold, you're sort of in the lap of the gods and, and you can do that with your eyes open or closed. I would say mine were kind of half open, half shut. <laughs> um, and I felt fine either way. You know, I, I, I did have quite strong ideas, my sort of what I call my Simone de Beauvoir fantasy of how my life without children was going to go. And, and even now I have friends who are living that dream and, you know, they've got good roles in society and, and I really, really admire them. But I also see that when I had a family, that complicated my life internally in, the, in a way that meant I couldn't be single-minded anymore. Mm. And whether that's subject to regret, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's just once you cross that line, you have crossed that line and it just isn't the same anymore. Yeah, and I think I think crossing that line and, and then looking back is kind of, I mean, it's the opposite of what we were just talking about of living in the present, isn't it? Because, I, I mean, I often talk about when we make decisions, my husband and I, uh, now we're very much mindful of them and very much intentional with with them. We don't often think about the flip side of those decisions because there's very little point in it. You know, there's very little point in in going back and thinking what if. I think I was I was thinking about this conversation this morning uh, when I got up, and I wanted to ask you what your thoughts. I, I guess what your definition of slow living is, because I think it's one of these things that much like the idea of minimalism or, you know, essentialism or all these other isms that are, that are kind of on trend at the moment, it means different things to different people and in the hands of different, different people with different agendas, it takes on different, you know, appearances. So what does a slow life look like to you? Well, when I had my family, there wasn't a slow movement. No. There's something that uh, Henry Thoreau says, and I use it as a, uh, an epigraph to my book, which is that the more slowly trees grow at first, the stronger they are at the core. Mm. And he says, I think the same is true for human beings. I read that when my son was born, 
and it really resounded with me. I felt I really wanted the kind of experience. I wanted him to experience life a bit like reading the book or seeing the movie. I wanted to make sure he'd read the book first before life on the outside. So I wanted to him to ease into life and not to stimulate him into it. Mm. Um, so that was my ground bed of thinking. I think that's a beautiful, um, a beautiful way of putting it, you know, reading the book before seeing the movie or, or easing into life before being stimulated into life because I think there is a, a huge tendency to, to go the opposite at the moment and I think that what you write about really beautifully in the book is your desire, your choice, I guess, to give your kids that space and that time and that, that attention and those skills that down the track mean that they're going to be these independent, strong-minded, resilient people uh, who have experienced you know the depth of things before they've been tossed out into the breadth of things and I think that that's um, yeah I think that's wonderful Uh, for me this is what I was thinking about this morning I really think that a slow life is is almost an examined life you know it doesn't look like a particular thing it doesn't have to look like a tiny home it doesn't have to look like baking bread it doesn't have to look like a particular thing or a particular set of interests I don't necessarily think I think it's about examining life and questioning and which in itself is is being present I think and by examining all different elements of life it can it can impact virtually every area of life from the food that we eat to the way that we parent to how we you know live in our home to how we live in the environment and those sorts of choices but I think it's that matter of examination and you know I, I guess having the awareness to question things uh, that that leads to slowness, which is intention and quality and, and all of those sorts of things. Uh, but I, I really love that, the book movie analogy a lot. Thank you for that. I'm going to be stewing on that for a while. Actually, the funniest take I had on uh, the title was uh, a friend in Melbourne who, who asked quite innocently, was I talking about autism? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which made me think, oh, maybe this slow movement isn't quite as widespread as I thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think there's something really interesting about a distinction we don't often make between independence and individuality. Mm. So independence is the kind of suppressed desire we all have to get our kids off our hands as soon as possible and out in the world and, and hopefully paying their way. No, I mean, I'm being facetious, but, but there's a way in which there's a lot of pressure on kids to be independent from an early age. But I don't hear so much people saying there's, it's as important for kids to be individuals mm. from an early age. And I've always treasured, treasured that more. Mm. So I chose to do things with them that would bring out their personality. I knew that they weren't going to be especially when we came out from England and they hit kindergarten in Melbourne. And, look, this is, this is a bit un-PC, but there were a lot of kids who were very gung-ho, confident, bravado, I'm it. And, and my kids just weren't like that. They were actually quite held back. And I'm sure half the kids in the kinder were like that too. But it's quite striking as a, as a parent to go into that context and see socially how your kid compares with, other children. I elected for them to have a lot of time at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something which is a little bit controversial these days, but I wanted them to be formed by love 
and I didn't really care about their social skills for quite a bit of time. Mm -hmm. I felt that that would follow from their feeling loved and secure Um, and if they didn't get to share their toys until they were four, well, did that really matter? I, I wanted them to be able to spend time on their own in the garden and find things to do from within themselves. That, to me, was a really important life skill. Mm. So we always had a lot of downtime, loose time, and even now we, I do that on weekends. I think the, um, the, 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 the ability to be bored is really important for kids and adults alike. You know, I think that so often now we're told that boredom is some kind of failing. You know, we haven't quite filled our days with enough stimulation or, or there's potential going to waste because we're bored. Whereas I think that boredom is key. I mean, even just as, a, as an adult, boredom is where a lot of my best thoughts happen because it's where you're, allow, you're, you're, you're allowing yourself to, to think deeply and go places that, you know, the stimulated hours of your day don't necessarily let your brain go to because there's always something else to do. And I think similarly with my kids, if they complain of being bored, I'm okay with that. I don't feel guilty about that because that's usually when 10 minutes later I'll find them in the backyard, they've made a cubby house or they're, you know, digging in the dirt or they're, they've made up a game with Lego and, and trains or something like that. And I think that boredom is really underappreciated. Uh, and I think how did, how did older kids deal with boredom? Because I feel like they just maybe get more vocal or. I'm afraid that the internet, and I don't want to do the in, internet conversation, but I think the internet is a real problem because it uh, intervenes and mm. preempts boredom. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I think if we're really honest, we feel this too. So I think when we're talking about boredom, we're talking about non-stimulation. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about passivity. We're just talking about the external world not making a demand on us. Yes. And then it's up to us how we experience that. I wanted that to be an invitation and not an affront, Mm. something to not welcome but to accept and to move into and move through. And I think what having kids has taught me is that I can only expect that in my children to the degree that I can do that in myself. Yes. So, you know, on Sundays I found, and my kids are late teenage now, it used to be turning off the internet and then I realised I actually had to take my watch off because otherwise I was always kind of looking down and away and, and focusing on this other thing which ultimately is the demand of the big other that I should be doing X or Y mm-hmm. when Really, I needed to what I call potter around and just live the life that I'm living and feel at one with that rather than endlessly scurrying off like Alice in Wonderland down down the nearest hole. Um, and I think that having children is quite confronting because you you realize that in yourself Absolutely. and you can't you can't scurry off all the time. Oh, that is absolutely true. That is probably one of the most uncomfortable things that I had to face in uh, sort of the first few years of parenthood is that kids at that age are 
just delighted to potter. They they will you take them for a walk and it takes you an hour to get down to the end of the block because you know they stop at the ants and they stop at the neighbor's mm. cat and they stop and they ask questions about flowers and every you know they they have no concept of time or efficiency. And mm. as a parent, a new parent, that really that was hard for me to uh, to come to grips with. To be honest, it really was, and I think that. There was a time where I remember my uh, my kids loved playing hide-and-seek uh, when they were sort of four or five years old. It was just one of their favourite things to do and they would ask me all the time to play and sometimes I would sort of half-heartedly play for five <laughs> minutes, sometimes I would say no, uh, sometimes yeah. I'd kind of find a place that I knew that they wouldn't find me and just enjoy five minutes of peace, <laughs> which, you know what, I feel, don't feel bad about it at all. Um, yeah. But... When, on those times that I would just give in and completely give myself over to it, it was incredible. You know, it was actually a real learning experience for me to just be all in this moment and to you get this giddy sense of oh, childishness or silliness or something. You know, it's this it's it's a particular feeling that I get when I give myself over to that kind of thing, and um, that took some that took some learning, you know, and I think that's one of the, the things that my kids have taught me the most is that joy of not caring about time or boredom or, you know, external stimulation, but diving right into your own imagination. I think it's really wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I, I always said that my kids have taught me as much as I've taught them, but yeah. in a way what they teach you is a kind of unlearning and that can feel quite awkward I mean, I never feel awkward with my kids and never did feel awkward with my kids, but um, it doesn't sit well with the demands of career. Uh, and so my analogy for you with hide-and-seek, for me it was um, my son used to love playing blocks and he would always want to have the tallest tower with his wooden blocks and that involved kneeling on the floor and when I was actually meant to be rushing out and seeing my first patient as a psychotherapist, it took enormous willpower to kind of just shut out that voice and say, I'm going to do this for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but even now, looking back, I'm thinking, no, I'm being dishonest because if it was all morning that I had to do that, then it wasn't so easy. So if it was not just 20 minutes and then I was rushing out and seeing a, a client, well, yeah, I could, I could build a damn good tower. But if it was all morning, <laughs> <laughs> it's really really hard that's why I think the sort of devotion which is being there for another and ambition which is serving a higher good you know they are incompatible aims and and they are for everybody man or woman you know mother or father Um, and yet we pretend that these this thing can be transcended it just can't uh, exactly I agree completely I just think this myth this idea of work-life balance is so damaging. Um, I hate it. So do I. I. I really do. I rail against it every time I hear of it. You know, I don't have a problem with the idea of balance over a long period of time. You know, if you look back over a year and think, how did I go? You know, how did I go with my with my family, with my kids, with my work, with, with community, all those things that, you know, that are important to me. How did I go over a period of 12 months? Fine. You know, that to aim for some kind of balance in that length of time I think is – fine but this this idea of work-life balance that somehow magically in the day-to-day we're able to service everything and everyone equally and 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 perfectly is so damaging and I think we're just beating ourselves up with this with this stick that we don't need to even be holding 
Mm. I think being a mother is is a journey. It sounds a cliche, but I mean in the uh, emotional sense that it it taps into unconscious parts of oneself that possibly previous experiences didn't tap into, particularly if you've been focused on career and, and kind of mm. what I call destination building. So I think that your my previous independence and focus on career was built on quite a shaky footing because it was built on suppressing the more helpless, more dependent parts of myself that I just couldn't integrate and get on as a publisher in London. Mm. It just it just didn't happen. And I wasn't conscious of it. Um, I did get sick probably more than I should have, but I didn't really listen. And so when you're with children, especially little ones, and you're up in the middle of the night and you're dreaming and you're half dreaming and you're, you know, it's, it's like some kind of psychological soup and you're in this soup and you don't really know whether it's conscious or unconscious but you get to know yourself at that deep level and your children have such need and love for you and it it is overwhelming and how do you then make sense of that in terms of your daytime self Mm. and there's no guidebook for that (laughs) (laughs) and and we we reassure ourselves at least I did um, that you know we would get I would get to six months, then my children would start school, and then the next benchmark was that they would know what to do with themselves in school holidays, and then the <laughs> next benchmark that they would f- finish school altogether, and you know they were very nice and they probably did console me, but they were fictions because the degree you and identify with your children is the degree to which you tap into their unconscious and you're never entirely free of that so I'm always going to be alive to that in my kids so I'm always going to be bound up with them at that deep level even when they go off and you know abandon me that's the next benchmark when they abandon me (laughs) (laughs) which again will be a fiction yes yes Um, so there's this there's this kind of juggle going on all the time and it really can never be reduced down to work-life balance, at least not in my head. No, and I mean, I, I absolutely think that that's correct, but I also love the idea of, of this sort of letting go and it taps back into something you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, this letting go of our thoughts necessarily being truth or our friends, you know, and I think that we, we're telling our story, ourselves stories a lot about motherhood or work or balance or you know any of these things and I think the acknowledgement that sometimes they are just stories is really incredibly helpful in ironically achieving some sense of contentment if not balance you know I think that contentment is sort of a, a, a much healthier place to be rather than than balance or outright joyful happiness all the time or you know all these things that we kind of find ourselves striving for there was something really nice. My my daughter, and she was probably about sixteen, and sitting at the kitchen table I'm now leaning on, and she was doing a homework, and she said, "Mummy, what does fulfilment mean?" Mm. And I thought, "What do you mean? Why are you asking me that? You ought to know what fulfilment means." And then I I sort of trotted out a definition in my kind of I used to teach literature, so my kind of teacher voice. 
bloody blah. It means the consummation of long-held wishes or whatever, whatever my definition was. And then I thought about it. And I said, Charlotte, I actually don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. I'm going to have to think about it. <laughs> and I did think about it. And I realized that, um, you know, it, it fed into my romantic fantasies that things would come together. There would be this lovely consummation and fulfillment and achievement and success, and it will all be credited from without. And, but really what I cared about is much closer to what I and probably you two would call flow, mm. which is engagement in doing stuff that matters to me in the present in which I lose my self-consciousness and just am at one with whatever I'm doing and those kind of voices in my head drop away Mm. and so that's what I tried to do as much as I could with my kids as well to give them things to do so that they could just forget about being them and and put a nail through their thumb if they had to because they did a lot of woodwork but but you know they wouldn't they would be in themselves, doing stuff. And my son, who's just turned 20, still says, I just like doing stuff. Yeah, I think that's so important. Helen, uh, thank you so much for talking to me. I I can already tell you that I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for a long time. There's a lot in here that I I really just want to chew over. And, um, yeah, I just I appreciate your your insight and your willingness to share openly and uh, Thank know, you. Honestly, I think it's it's brilliant, and I would highly recommend that everyone go and um, check out your your blog. It's fantastic. In addition to your book, of course, but at um, at Haywood Haywoodhelen I will have links to that in the show notes. Uh, but thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was fun. Thank you, Brooke. Thanks, Helen. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, today we're sponsored by Etitude and their delightfully comfortable sheets and pajamas. If you head over to etitude.com.au/slowhome and use the uh, the discount code SLEEPBETTER, you'll get 10% off your first order at Etitude. And if you haven't already, head over and hit subscribe to the Slow Home Podcast in iTunes or leave us a review if you feel the need. And have a wonderful day. Jackrabbit FM. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, podcast.